CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara communities through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2022 to help keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400 and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic. Here with Jonah Bronstein. Uh, Jonah, a new designation. It just dawned on me. No longer Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. Right, that's you, are, Bronstein Times. you are a W-2 employee. Um, do you want to make an announcement here or... Do you want to make it official or introduce folks to your new your new uh, position? Yeah, I mean, I guess I could. I'm going to hold this up for the camera people to see, and I think it's mirrored and backwards maybe, or maybe that's just what I'm seeing here. But um, No, yeah, you're just, seeing it mirrored. We I'm see it, it right in now, okay. the real way. Okay, got that. I should learn some of these things in the multimedia business I, I hope to be embarking upon. Yeah, Bronstein and – Enterprises has been acquired and incorporated by WIVB-TV Channel 4. Um, it hasn't really been officially announced, I don't think, publicly, but it's been internally announced in kind of a soft launch, if you will. There's, If you search hard enough on Google and certain websites, you'll see my author page. You might see my Twitter bio has been updated, and soon enough, you'll see me contributing articles for WIVB.com and other type of content and probably more uh, social media activity and more public acknowledgement of this job that I've been training and onboarding in the past week and just got off for my Friday shift. What are your uh, reporting duties? What types of stories will you be doing? Well, uh, anything and everything. And some of that is still to be determined and figured out along the way, but it's going to involve covering bills, sabers, college, high schools, and everything in between in Western New York sports. It's not a specific beat job like a newspaper and, and like past jobs I had at the Buffalo News where I was only covering high school sports or certain roles with the Associated Press that would only do Bills and Sabres games. Uh, a lot is undefined at this point and still to be determined and figured out maybe what resonates best with the audience and how to best spend my time, but it'll be a job that uh, incorporates all of the Western New York sports landscape, which is what attracted me to the job because in ways I've done that with piecing different part-time jobs and different freelance assignments together to cover local colleges, high schools, bills and savers. And now I have a opportunity to do that all under one umbrella in, in some form or fashion. I know it's early yet, but do you think that you will be picking your stories more so than being assigned them? Do you think that you have, like you say, the entire landscape at your disposal, what do you think you'll be gravitating towards? Yeah, I do think I'll have a lot of opportunity and responsibility to find the stories that I'll be right about. And in a lot of ways, this might be shorter, clickable content and finding things that the audience wants uh, to learn more about and doing quick turnarounds on things that are trending online and different ways to enhance uh, WIBB Channel 4's 
regular sports coverage with digital content and do things that are more designed for that digital audience online and mobile devices and things like that. Um, and, and so that's still part of the part that's undefined is maybe how much, what, what is already being covered well enough, what needs more coverage and what is really uh, the best use of my time. But I have all sorts of different story ideas and content project ideas and feature ideas that I'm hoping to be able to do. I mean, we do have Jerry Sullivan writing columns and features a couple of times a week. Um, so a lot of that is still for me to figure out what's being done by others and what's left for someone new to do. But there's all sorts of sporting events this time of year, particularly the Sabres are getting started very soon. The Bills are underway and going to the Super Bowl any minute now. UB football's playing games and maybe someday they'll soon be winning games. And the high school football is back underway. The officials did not go on strike. So all of those games were played on time and ready to go. So this is the busiest time of year for sports at all different levels. And it remains busy through the fall and the winter and, you know, less busy around these parts in the spring and the summer. Well, and it was uh, very significant. Uh, Joe Biden uh, getting involved in the section six, uh, referee strike to make sure that that did not happen right before the railroad strike was solved. He, uh, got, uh, got his hands dirty and, uh, made sure that Western New York was going to have its high school sports. Right. I think that's why Kamala Harris came to Buffalo this week to, uh, broker the section six officiating labor dispute. That was the hook. Well, I'm happy for you, Jonah, and I think that your voice is the most important in this market when it comes to high school and college sports, and any chance to amplify that and give your coverage that much more exposure uh, is a great thing uh, for Western New Yorkers, whether it's online, um, whether it's in print, wherever your work appears. I, I'm, I'm happy for you, and I'm happy for, for Western New York sports fans. Well, I appreciate that, Tim, and, and I like that this strengthens our working relationship and connection a little bit now where uh you know we're teammates teammates in a way bkl or, you know josh mates. reed and and thad brown and and the whole crew there um mike courtney heather prusak we all consider ourselves teammates sal capaccio and matt perino also even though you know we're not full-time employees uh we're uh we're on on spec you get the paycheck from them I have to submit an invoice, but uh, we're still teammates. Yeah, and well, we both worked for and written for the Buffalo News, but not at the same time. I don't think we were ever employed there at the same time. And we've covered a lot of sporting events at the same time together, side by side, but not, very rarely covering for the same outlet or being quote unquote teammates other than what we've done with this podcast and the radio show that preceded it. Yeah, that is pretty cool. I didn't even think of that part until you brought it up. Um, oh, by the way, I should mention that we're going to be joined uh, later in this episode uh, by Ed Halinski. Now, he's for a North Tonawanda native who's led an incredibly colorful career. Uh, first as a journalist, uh, he worked for the Tonawanda News, the Buffalo Courier Express. Uh, but his career took a turn in the 80s when he took a job with the World Wrestling Federation as the editor of their magazine when it launched and he has some great stories to tell about uh, his career. Also, uh, he was uh, the beat reporter for the Buffalo Norsemen, uh, one season minor league team here in Buffalo, 75-76 season. 
Uh, they were in the North American Hockey League, and that's the league that inspired the movie Slapshot. And uh, Ed has some good stories to tell about uh, how he was uh, not necessarily involved with the movie production, but because uh, Paul Newman and his crew uh, were using the North American Hockey League as its uh, basis, uh, that he was around a lot of the production and involved with uh, what he thinks uh, was a scripted brawl in a game that he was covering and that was scripted for the purpose of the production crew to see how it would play out on film so they could see it in a game. And I think the North American Hockey League obliged the production and held, held a, a line brawl uh, right there and uh, uh, right there uh, in front of everybody. Uh, so we'll have Ed uh, on uh, a little bit later. Uh, Jonah, I, I want to ask you about this. Um, and I was just watching uh, the news earlier today, and it's been a big story. I didn't realize until you told me right before we came on the air that it's it's a national story. Um, Bill's fandom, it really is an event in and of itself. And it, and it has been that way, especially when the team was bad. You think about, you know, during the drought years, we all knew people in our lives, friends of ours, who didn't have tickets to the games, but were just going to tailgate. They had no interest of even stepping foot in the stadium. They went to tailgate. It's the party. Um, and then they went so long without having primetime games other than the Thursday night, you know, throwaway. Then they finally have a game. And I, I don't remember whether it was a Sunday night game or a Monday night game uh, in which two people died. You know, the fans got so drunk. The one guy uh, fell face first into the creek after he got ejected from the stadium. Another guy got run over trying to uh, cross Southwestern against the light uh, because he was too drunk. And so the Bills fans have had this, you know, this, and I also want to take a step back. I don't want to have this be to totally negative. I mean, but Bills fans have had to make their own fun for a long time. And I do recall HBO Real Sports, maybe 15 years ago, did a segment on fans who get too, fucked up you know they get it's a problem for the nfl and the nfl started a pilot program in which they were trying to find ways to mitigate uh fan um accidents uh misbehavior um ruining the experience for the fans who weren't there to party type thing and the pilot program was held in oakland and buffalo and that's not a coincidence they didn't just pull those two teams out of a hat so buffalo knows how to get after it well they most of them, uh, mo most fans know how to give it at, get after it. And with the game starting at 7.15, and this is my long windup to get into this point, um, and maybe that's part of the reason. They're trying to get these kids off the streets, out of school, out of the buses. They don't want the buses on the streets anywhere near uh, the South Towns. Uh, half day of school. Uh, and of course, I'm not saying it's the, it's the drinking part of it, but it this half day of school thing has been has become a national story. Like, look, how, look at these Bills fans and how they get after it. They didn't. You hear about it sometimes when somebody when the when a team wins a championship that the mayor says, OK, the schools are closed tomorrow so you can come to the parade or something. This is we're going to close our schools early just so we can clear the path for the home opener. Well, it's a it's a traffic related decision for the most part. ECC, I believe, cancels their evening classes on a day like Monday when the Bills play in prime time as well. I, I kind of remember that being a little bit of a story when that first happened a few prime time, a few seasons ago with a prime time game. Because for the Bills weren't playing Monday night games at home and prime time games at home for many, many years. 
And it's only more of a recent phenomenon where the Bills have, one, been good enough to do that. And two, there was some thought that maybe Ralph Wilson didn't want these home primetime games. So it's more recent in time that these occasions have even come up other than maybe the odd preseason game that was a weeknight before. And with the schools getting let out. So, yeah, I don't think they're getting let out. because It's like, hey, kids, go home and paint your faces and get ready for the right. game. That's, they're trying to get they're trying to clear right. the streets. Now, there is a push. I, I heard people talking about it last week. Some people think school and work should be canceled on Mondays or in the case last week, a Friday after a Bills game and maybe even after an evening game because everybody needs that just day off to recover from the emotionally draining experience of watching right. the, the emotionally draining part. Yeah. It has nothing to do with being hung over uh, or, or fill in the blank. Well, if we're talking about school age pupils, I don't know how many of them are hung over and fill in the blank, whatever. Well, that's like true. That. <laughs> but well, I thought uh, you're yeah, saying yeah. to get out, you're saying school should be, I, I thought you were referring to like work, like jobs, well, like that right. you should so, have to show up to work on Monday after a Bills game. Some people have said that. I think that you're absolutely correct that there's a, uh, you know, I want to sleep in and sleep this off aspect to that. I, I remember years ago and even coming off of get my voice back, you know, I'm, I, I screamed my throat raw and I need uh, I need a day off because I can't speak. Well, I remember a lot of people not going to school or calling in sick the day after those Super Bowls, because that was a sure emotionally draining experience late into the night. And it was very hard for people to wake up the next day and get back to normal well, life. after 13 seconds. Yeah, maybe. I'm sure maybe people called in. I've always kind of, you know, rolled my eyes maybe a little bit or pushed back against this idea that, you know, we're only happy in Western New York on a Monday after the Bills win and everybody's sad in Western New York for the whole week or half the week after the Bills lose. I think that's overblown. But there's probably a lot of people that feel that way. And, you know, but this is a different thing. This is about anticipation for the game. And I knew that that was a significant local story. I do wonder if there's other school districts where the kids are saying, well, what about our half day? But if you're not in a traffic area where it's really about buses, the buses are not going to be able to get in and out of school and do what they're supposed to do properly at three, four o'clock with all of that bills traffic. So that needs to be pushed up to earlier in the day. But I was surprised to learn this this morning, uh, our friend Elena Getzenberg, who covers the bills for Buffalo for ESPN.com, came and spoke to my class at Madai University uh, sports and media class. And as you do, we'd like to bring in. I'm going to say it because I need to speak it into my mind. Madai University. I know I, I would, I, it's not Madai college anymore. It's Madai University. Yeah. And I'm still, I'm, I'm just saying that, it for Damon my own as well. And do you Damon University, Deauville University, also Baldwin Wallace University, my alma mater, which I can never get right. In fact, I'll say this. I have problem. I still call them the Cleveland Indians. I'm constantly asking my son if the Indians won last night. My daughter is the one constantly correcting me. She doesn't give a shit about sports, but she's always telling me, Dad, it's the Guardians. I'm like, yeah. And I think at the I should have that down by now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been nine months since the name change or however, however long it's been. But Anyways, sorry to interrupt. So Elena no, Getzenberg no, I, is talking Elena to your Getzenberg. class at Madai University. Yes, and then we pulled up her latest stories for ESPN.com. And the latest story that she wrote yesterday was about the, you know, I'm reading it right here. Schools near the Buffalo Bills Stadium will have a half day before Monday night football game. Um, now, this game is on ESPN. Maybe that does sort of influence this decision now that I'm thinking about it. But um, I was surprised to learn that that's a national story, that there's people outside of Buffalo that are interested in reading about kids in Hamburg and 
Frontier and nearby Orchard Park that get a half day. And that's what I'm getting at when I say this. The Bills fans have taken on a life of their own. It's their own thing. They're being covered not as much as the team, but they're being covered as their own thing. Right. And the, a, the phenomenon of being a Bills fan is, is content. Yeah, Bills fans are a brand and a uh, almost a franchise in and of themselves outside of the team itself. And, and maybe that happens with some other fan bases. I'm thinking Oakland and Cleveland, but not all the time, not too often. We didn't really get this stuff in Cleveland. I'm talking about growing up when the, when the Browns were good. And, of course, times have changed. I mean, I'm talking about 35 years ago. But, um, yeah, you'd get the fan stories that would come around when the playoffs were rolling or, you know, were coming to, uh, to be. Uh, you'd start getting those fan stories about, you know, braving the elements and the tailgating and all that stuff. But not in, not in early September or, or October even. Um, I'm thinking the dog pound. Was the dog pound ever as much of a media phenomenon as Bills fans have become in the last few years? You know, the black hole, uh, Lambeau. There are some things that teams have, but the Bills fans, like anywhere, it doesn't have to be. It's not a certain section of the stadium. It's not like Wrigley Field bleachers or, you know, um, trying to think of what are some other, um, you know, trying to think Pittsburgh doesn't really have a thing. The uh, Miami doesn't have a thing to pay. Uh, anyways, but there's, you know, some, like you say, the dog pound was a section. It wasn't just the fans of the Browns. It was the people who sat in a very specific place. Whereas the bills fans are, it's just all of them. Everybody. It's a little bit like maybe a college crowd. There's probably a better football example of this, but I'm thinking of the Cameron crazies where the fans themselves are almost as famous or well-known and, and contribute to the game atmosphere as much as the players and the team on the field. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. And so Elena Getzenberg, uh, who covers the bills, she doesn't cover the NFL experience. Uh, her editors, rather than a Josh Allen story or Stefan Diggs or Ed Oliver's injury. Um, and ESPN knows what gets the clicks. The ESPN knows what it's doing. Um, and that's what ESPN's editors wanted to, wanted to hear about. And so I just think that's fascinating. Um, I, it's, uh, and we've known this, I mean, we know the, the lore, the folklore of Bill's fans. Um, and I've always thought to myself, yeah, you're, you're good. You're great fans, but there are other great fans, other places too. Um, but now it seems as now that the team is good and you have this convergence of the, the feverish fan that was built up during those drought years of the table jumping and the partying and all the different things about proving your fandom, even when the team sucked and looking for ways to enjoy yourself on Sunday, that is now meeting a team that's really good. And I think it is just the mushroom cloud. And, and now I, I will, uh, I, I won't scoff at the notion that Bill's fans are the, are the best. Uh, and obviously there are different ways to measure the best. Um, you can probably say, uh, you know, the most polite fans or the most knowledgeable fans or the, but in terms of passion, um, and I'm, you know, Bills fans are, you know, they, they know their team frontwards and backwards and they know the game and the, 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 what they put into it, what they put into their bodies, what they put into their systems uh, for the, for the sake of this team and to get into, uh, to enjoy their team for three hours uh, once a week. Uh, I don't know that I can come up with another fan base. I used to be able to say who the bad ones were, you know, Miami Dolphins fans are just terrible. Um, 
you know, you could talk about behavior and things like that, but in terms of passionate fan or like Lambeau field, you'd say that's a little bit more of an August, um, you know, because of the, the way that the season tickets are handed down from generation to generation, it's a little bit more of a, um, it has, it's a fan base with a gravitas to it. Um, so if you want to say the Packers fans are the best fans in the NFL, because technically they own the team, it's a community-based team. Yeah. There are different ways to measure, but in terms of, in terms of the, the way people just go after it and, and, and just get behind their team, I think I'll, I think I'll, I'll entertain that, uh, entertain that notion now. And I, I think I'm probably starting to believe it, that the Bills fans are different, that they are better. Yeah, I think the strongest parallel would probably be some kind of European soccer club and the passion they have over there and even the hooliganism, which maybe is a little bit reminiscent of some of the more unsavory parts of the Bills fan base over the years. It also reminds me a bit of like a professional wrestling crowd with the interactivity and the, the fans are part of the show in a way. And, and that's, you know, wrestling is where you get this table breaking culture from in the first place. So there's maybe a bit of a, uh, connection with that but what I find interesting is that as this collective Bills Mafia and if you're not watching the video you don't see my air quotes here but that persona has become mainstream accepted by the mainstream it's become you know not the uh the persona that maybe the Bills and some people in Western New York were embarrassed about a few years ago it's very much uh, accepted by most everybody within the team, around the team, certainly the players on the team, the media uses Bill's Mafia and headlines and things like that much more freely and liberally than they did even three, four years ago. And it's also coincided with, or maybe I'm just not seeing it. We haven't seen as many videos of people uh, doing crazy things in the parking lots. Nobody's thrown a toy. It's, we haven't had a home opener yet. Uh, I think that, yeah, we're going to see, uh, hopefully they've toned it down. I, I would like for that to be the case. I would like for it just as a 51 year old guy. I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, 22 or anymore, but I, I just the idea of, you know, like, let's, let's tone it down. Enjoy yourselves, obviously enjoy this ride, but let's, you know, let, let's not embarrass ourselves like we did in a parking lot for Kiko Alonso's Jersey. Uh, or uh, uh, what, what do they call it? Uh, the, when they, the guy who the video was going around to the guy drinking a beer out of a, butt out of the, a butt chug. Yeah. Out of the crack of a, a woman's ass right in front of everybody. I mean, I was just wearing all their bills stuff and it's like, yeah, bills fans. And it's like, come on. I mean, at least have some self-respect. But that's uh, and- probably still happening. Some of that stuff, but it's become less popular to videotape it and make it a media sensation it seems i don't know about that i think i'll push back on that aspect of it i, I don't i think you, there's a chance that it would happen even more that people would i mean because you have different outlets that would love to post that stuff and maybe even pay for it um and the table breaking is interesting it's become this kind of kitschy uh parody where people jump through the table themselves and nobody's really getting hurt the table folds almost before somebody even touches it and it used to be a bit more and much probably much more violent people throwing their girlfriends through the table and some of these tables were on fire they were jumping off the top of trailers and it seemed like people really got hurt the dizzy bat races we saw i think were another video where the um, guy in in nashville uh, a couple years ago who matt fairburn and i looked at each other as we saw the video the game is going on the guy jumped off of a parking ramp missed the table yeah. and fell face first. And Matthew was like, should we be like making phone calls to the hospital? Should we be covering this? This guy might've died. 
Um, so I hope that, yeah, I hope that that gets toned down. I don't like that aspect or the fans being known for that part, but it also is a big reason why they've become such a big deal. I mean, people are fascinated with, you know, Bill's fans. I, but I, I don't think that it's necessarily they're looking, uh, if you're uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, watching ESPN on, on Monday night and you see the Bill's fans acting crazy, it doesn't mean that the, those fan base, the, those, that person is envious of like, oh, my God, look at those fans. I, I, love, I love that. No, I think a lot of people look at it as how embarrassing. Now, that aspect of it. But I, I do think that uh, I think by and large – you know, and as much as we may roll our eyes at the fans who show up at the airport after a regular season loss, um, after a preseason game, uh, that's taken on a life of its own, too. And it's kind of silly, and I would never do it. And if my kids ever said, hey, Dad, take us down to the airport, I would say, hell no. Uh, but if uh, but if people want to do that, that's fine. That's clean. It's not it's not obscene or or it's just kind of weird, but. That all that factors into it. Right. Yeah. And as you mentioned, this is part of the national appeal is Bill's fans behaving badly. At least that was what maybe brought the eyeballs in in the first place. And if the Bill's fans were just very passionate, but all they were doing was waving pom-poms and singing the shout song, it probably wouldn't be a national story that schools are being closed in a half day. It almost fits that national narrative of this in this town, nothing matters more than going to the Buffalo bills game. Right. And you know what I think happens too, and this is an aside and we'll, we'll talk about UB football, but you also see because the fans are so into the bills, I think that's why you see uh, some national media people. I'm talking about TV and radio people um, pander to the bills fans. And they really, um, they really go a little overboard with their um, with their excitement and and getting behind the Bills because Bills fans um, uh, repeat that or it reverberates it uh, uh, they they amplify it so it's kind of like if you're a, if you're a national sportscaster based in Philadelphia or Dallas and you start talking about the Bills or tweeting about the Bills you're going to get a lot of retweets and likes and people are going to talk about how great you are. Um, and so I think that the fans have, uh, there, there are a lot of people who, who like to pander to the bills fans to, to get the, to get the likes and the pats on the back. Let me ask um, you a question while I look something up. What do you think about this nine and a half point spread in this game? Bill's favored. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it, it's fat. When I saw it, uh, I thought, I thought too fat, but I, I, I think the Titans are struggling. Uh, they they should not have uh, had too much trouble with the Giants. And, of course, they had a 13-0 lead at halftime and found a way to lose the game on Brian Dable's decision to go for two late. Um, but, you know, the Titans are even more of a one-phase team than they used to be uh, because they have so many new faces in the receiving game. It's pretty much Derrick Henry and uh and a defense and i i think that the the giant if the giants are going to be if, if let me even distill it a little bit more if daniel jones uh can beat the titans then i think that josh allen uh, should have a much easier time of it well football so, reference says the bills were favored by six points at tennessee on monday night last year that i didn't realize that they were getting so much love in that situation then they lost that game right and that's a game that they should have won obviously with uh you know, the plunge there, uh, the Josh Allen sneak in which he slipped 
but also Deion Dawkins got beat and that whole line caved and it took a couple of kind of freakish or uh, strange things to happen for the Titans to snuff them out there at the goal line. But uh, the Bills should have won that game. Well, uh, but I don't agree with that. I don't think that the Bills only lost that game because Josh Allen slipped much in the same way. I don't think the Bills only lost that Chiefs game because they didn't kick it out of the end zone or whatever. Well, right. Play away. There's a lot of there are a lot of things the Bills specifically. But they were that had. close to winning it. Right. They were, they were very that- close to winning, but they gave up 34 points to the Titans and they gave up. A 76-yard touchdown run in which Derrick Henry was barely, t- barely touched. And, uh, you know, I think Micah Hyde took a bad angle and uh, got got beaten badly on that play. And But, yeah, you usually don't see that. Well, saw it again in Kansas City, I guess. He and Poyer. Um, let's talk about UB football real quick, Jonah. Um, not a lot of fan action. Uh, we probably – don't have to worry about uh, crimes being perpetrated in the in the parking lot at UB Stadium. Uh, too many rowdy fans. Uh, the tailgating uh, probably involves, um, you know, a, a little Coleman cooler and maybe a cup, of, you know, a thermos for your coffee. Uh, but uh, well, they have those tailgate concerts. It's a little bit of a scene, but it's much more milder, much more family friendly, yes. and, and definitely more of a uh, smaller scale event i think they had sixteen thousand for the home opener last year last week and it never looks like the crowd that is there too because that stadium is so spread out uh but anyways um they're owing two after the the hail mary loss to holy cross and face an important game against coastal carolina what uh, what are your thoughts about it yeah they're at coastal carolina they're underdogs by 13 and a half points. So they're not really expected to win this game. Coastal Carolina was ranked in the top 25 a year ago when they won at Buffalo 28, 25. I covered that game for the Associated Press because Coastal Carolina was a ranked team. That was one of UB's best performances of the season last year, even though they didn't win the game playing that close and really being in it at the end and shutting down Coastal Carolina's very high powered offense a year ago was considered almost a, uh, a bit of a win for UB, even though they didn't pull it out in the end. I want to quickly interject, Jonah, um, for people who are listening, if they hear growling in the background, uh, that is Daisy, and uh, she's insisting on tug-of-war uh, off-camera here. So if, if that's coming through, I just want to let uh, everybody know that uh, there's nothing I can do about it. All right. And so Coastal Carolina not ranked anymore, but still – one of the better mid-major level teams in college football. They have the same quarterback, Grayson McCall, and the same coaching staff. And if they're not a top 25 caliber team, they're still uh, one of the better teams UB is going to play a non-conference game against, especially in a home-and-home series like this is. And UB's in a – they're struggling. They lost at Maryland. They lost at home against Holy Cross. It was only the second time Buffalo's ever lost to an FCS team. The Holy Cross is a – ranked FCS team and better than most of the teams that they beat up on in that type of game. But it's disconcerting if you're a UB fan to see them lose at home to a, you know, a lower division opponent. And if they are not able to win tomorrow against on Saturday against Coastal Carolina, then they're going to be 0-3. And they haven't been 0-3 since 2005, which was the last year of Jim Hoffer being the coach which means all the different coaches, Turner Gill, Jeff Quinn, Lance Leipold, never had an 0-3 start to a season. And it would be their seventh straight loss, which is the longest losing streak spanning multiple seasons since 
the end of the 2010 season and then the opening game of 2011, uh, Jeff Quinn's first and second season. Um, so UB, I don't think they're sliding back to where they were at the beginning of the century where they were one of the worst teams in college football and couldn't beat anybody. But on paper, wins and loss record, uh, they are sliding quite a bit from the uh, top 25 but Maryland and Coastal Carolina, that's, you know, like you say, those take a look at any other 0-3 start in UB history, and you don't have teams like that. I mean, at least not True. two out of the three. And a lot of these seasons were one and two starts where they lost to a team like Maryland and maybe a team like Coastal Carolina, but beat that FCS team. That's really the big right. reason. But just numbers-wise, they're 0-3 to start the season. It's going to be very difficult for them to get to 6-6 six and six and be bowl eligible. And maybe they can have a nice season in the MAC even if they don't win any non-conference games and possibly win the East division and go to the MAC championship game and find their way into the postseason that way. But it's starting to look like another losing season for UB. And what happens with UB is I think they have some local relevance and get some excitement in the fan base when they're good and when they're winning and when they have the potential for maybe a postseason opportunity. And then when they lose, they lose a lot of relevance. It's not like the Bills or the Sabres where people want to know why they're bad and how they can get good again. It's sort of, you know, all right, I'm out, not paying attention. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll think about it again in 10 months. Especially when the Bills are this good and it's going on at the same time. Some of UB's more interesting years from a fan support perspective probably came in years when the Bills were struggling a bit or whatnot. Um, so it's, it's tough for UB to really get uh, on the local radar a bit, unless they're really good and the bills aren't sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Yeah, it'll be, uh, so it's a big game in a lot of ways, uh, even though, you know, they're not supposed to win. They need to maybe pull something out. I think it's a big game for confidence because I think if they lose by a big number and then they go into their Mac opener next week at Eastern Michigan, Zero and three, and maybe losing confidence from some of the ways they've lost these games. But if they could, if it's similar to last year, if they lose twenty eight twenty five, but feel really good about themselves, and I think last year was a game where UB felt like if there were five quarters to that game that they would have won, that they were getting better and better and taking over the game late after falling behind early. So I think if they lose in that fashion, especially on the road, then it could be a bit of a springboard to starting to win some games as they get into MAC play. But a bad loss could just snowball and cycle even further uh, the way this season's going. Jonah, thanks for that. Um, we're going to take a break. Uh, and then when we come back, uh, I'm going to have a conversation with Ed Holinsky, uh, who is a former Western New York uh, sports writer who uh, went on to work for the World Wrestling Federation and also has been doing some uh, good work with the North Tonawanda Football Hall of Fame. Um, stick around right after this. The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716 716- 630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. 
We are joined now on Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. By the pride of North Tonawanda, Ed Halinski. This has been a long time coming, mostly because of uh, my problems with scheduling. And, uh, and I'll just go ahead and say, this is take two of the podcast because of my problems getting words out of my mouth. Ed, thank you. Uh, we just, it was been a long time coming. We had to delay it an extra couple minutes. Uh, to do uh, a second take here. That's thank okay. you for your patience and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, North Tonawanda Football Hall of Fame uh, in a little bit. Uh, Ed Holinsky has been uh, uh, a great contributor to that cause and uh, to uh, putting it together and getting it off the ground. And um, it, but but Ed has had uh, an incredibly colorful career uh, in journalism. Uh, which would include four years with the World Wrestling Federation. And when I say World Wrestling Federation, I, I do so uh, on purpose. And I think that that should be uh, uh, suggestive of the time that maybe the, the institution wasn't as polished. And Ed has some great stories to tell about his four years working with Vince McMahon and all the, the great characters uh, and, and friends of his. Um, but Ed, let's start at the beginning. You're a, you're a journalist, uh, at your core, right out of high school, right out of North Tonawanda high school. You are a sports writer. How, why did you decide to get into it? What was it I, about sports writing that drew you to it? Tim, I got into it while I was in high school. I okay. started off as a stringer with the Tonawanda news hired by a gentleman named Paul Moran, who then uh, was there for a couple of years and then became a, a great horse writer. Uh, down in the New York, this New York City area in Saratoga, I think he's in the uh, the horse uh, horse racing writers a Hall of Fame or something to that effect. So he gave me my first break. So we were we were doing you know games in the old Niagara Frontier League, you know where North Tonawanda was taking on Trot or Niagara Wheatfield, and you caught the bug on being able to do something like this. And when you're starting when you're 15, 16 years old and you're getting a shot like that. It's kind of neat, and it's really good for your ego, even way back when, way back then. So we moved on to that, and then. Well, you know, wait. Let, let's stay in that moment for a second, if we can. Ed, do you remember your first real assignment? Yeah, it was uh, North Tonawanda versus Niagara Wheatfield. And what do you recall the game or anything about it, or your experience of trying to file a, a story afterwards? Everything was done on a on a on a uh, Smith Corona typewriter at that point. I mean. I don't think we had an electric one. It was a manual one we were, were uh, hacking and pecking at, and God forbid that you made a spelling mistake or anything like that. And then you filed the story on paper, and you, you, you threw it in the night slot over at the Tonawanda News on River Road because the game happened on Saturday. There was no Sunday paper, and it was going to appear on Monday. So, uh, we, we, you know, Niagara Weefield at the time, the field wasn't really nothing like the stadiums like today. I mean, it's more like a mud pit, and those high school fields were afterthoughts more than than uh, what they are today. I mean, with the artificial turf and, and uh, pristine conditions and, and uh, the crown that is exact on some of these fields, back then it was really Spartan. So it's it's come a long way since then. I mean, the Niagara Frontier League was a great, great league. 
And it's funny how it all comes around full circle with this, the North Tonto One Football Hall of Fame and our YouTube channel. You know, we had the cast of characters, uh, you know, uh, back then George Vetter and uh, Chuck Ramsey and Clint Small and uh, Orlando Mazza in, in Niagara Falls and, and uh, Bob Adams and Kenmore East and, and uh, Jules Yakupovich and Kenmore West. That was a really special time where you had these big schools taking on these little schools. And nobody cared that they were playing a big school, David versus Goliath. It was, it was, it was an intense league, and and a lot of the players described that Niagara Frontier, old Niagara Frontier League, is the best uh, football federation in all of New York State. Yeah, there is a romanticism uh, to those times, uh, and they make sure that you you don't play out of your your level too often. Uh, and uh, it takes some of that, like you say, the David and Goliath, the, the same thrill that you get in the NCAA tournament every year. Uh, those, those moments don't exist nearly as much uh, at the high school level that they used to. Even in the state of Indiana, uh, the great basketball tournament that, that, that inspired Hoosiers, um, I don't know what it was, maybe 20 years ago or even more, they did away with that. It's not the open tournament. Everybody's got to play at their own level, and what that is is really it's, it's for money. Because the more championships you can give away, the more tournaments you can run, uh, the more money you can make at the gate. But anyways, I don't want to uh, go down that uh, down that path. Uh, so your path, uh, you go from uh, the the Tonawanda News to the Buffalo Courier Express. Let me just backtrack. But you went to college in between, right? I went in between, but my first my first year at college was at Niagara Community College but I still had a beat with the Tonawanda News and that was the Buffalo Norseman of the North American Hockey League. Slapshot. Exactly. That was the year that Slapshot was made. And so there, I sat in in some of the filming and some of the different locations with that. Was caught in the locker room in Johnstown, Pennsylvania in the infamous brawl. Uh, met Paul Newman at that point. And I, to this day, I, the brawl I think was incited and was the idea of the movie. Uh, they wanted to try it out first and to see if it would play out and how it would look. And then they recreated it on film. So, I mean, yeah, it was the goofiness of that North American Hockey League. Wait, hang on a second, Ed. You mean to tell me that, that the actual brawl that the movie was based on, or the scene, the big scene in the movie, was also scripted in a way? Or did they get the play? How'd they get the players to go along with it? They practiced. They practiced with an actual brawl so they could see how it would play out when they reenacted in the movie. To this day and to the day I die, I will always believe that, that it would, that, and because, you know, I was in professional wrestling, the entertainment, I understand how some of these things work behind the scenes. Please don't insult my intelligence because I know better that this was concocted by the movie people and Paul Newman and because they wanted to see how it was how it would play out. And were there, were there some bad blood between the Johnstown Jets and the Buffalo Norsemen at that time? Yeah, there was. But it just egg these guys on, maybe throw a couple bucks their way, these players. You know, the Hanson brothers were notorious as they were in the North American Hockey League, even before they became movie stars. And, you know, they were, you know, get the tinfoil and foiling up way before that. So, you know, it, it's, I mean, it was madness. We were, you know, 
locked in the locker room. We needed a police escort out of town, fans trying to come through the bus windows, you know, uh, canine dogs coming after the fans and, and taking a chunk out of their legs so they would leave us alone. And we got like a 10 mile uh, police escort out of town. I mean, it it was goofy and nuts. And I'm a poor kid who's like 18 years old at the time taking this all in, not necessarily understanding what the heck was going on at the time. So this is 1975-76 season that you're covering the Buffalo Norsemen. Correct. And I'm sure that wasn't the only moment because, again, this is the, the league that inspired uh, Slapshot. And the, I'm sure you have other stories. Uh, what was it like to cover that league at a time? You know, the Sabres are in existence. Uh, the Buffalo Norsemen, uh, there is room, I guess, uh, back then in sports for um, fringe minor leagues. They, but they're, obviously they, they fail over the, over the course of time but they're doing whatever they can to stay in business uh, and to draw attention and, and to get fans. Uh, you have players clinging to careers, players hoping to start their careers, all those different things while, while doing it uh, with minimal resources uh, in the, in the dressing room from your, your coaching staff, your training, the equipment, all that stuff. What do you recall of, of that and of course you say you're 18, so maybe you don't know any better, but then I guess as time goes on and you reflect and you're like, wow, that you get, you get some perspective of what it's probably supposed to be like when you get around other locker rooms uh, and reflect on what the, what it was like to be a member of the Norsemen or even of the, that league at the time. What it was, was the Sabres sent some players down there. And it, that team was also a, a farm affiliate of the Toronto Toros of the World Hockey Association. The Buffalo players that were sent down were people who had bad habits, meaning they might have drank too much. So they were, instead of sending them to their minor league affiliate, their direct American League affiliate, they would send them down to the North American Hockey League. And this way, they would kind of like sweep them under the carpet and let them play. Some of these guys, you know, were then picked up by, would go to the World Hockey Association. This, you had a lot of players that were, were college players. You had guys who were undrafted. You had guys just looking for a chance and an opportunity. And um, it, was, it was rough and tumble, brutal hockey at its finest. It, uh, it was all gooned up in a lot of ways. It really was. Guy Trottier was the player coach. And those of you who know, you know, Buffalo hockey understand Guy was quite the player with the old Buffalo Bisons. And a guy named Willie Marshall, who was like one of the all-time leading scorers in the American Hockey League, was the general manager. And so th those two were, were put in charge of putting together this ragtag bunch that they went through a lot of players. I remember Les Binkley the great Les Binkley being signed by the Buffalo Norsemen or a guy named Kiki Mortson, who was then at that point set 47 years old. They, they brought him in just to be a power play specialist. It was a lot of guys who were cast off in their careers. A lot of them that developed bad habits throughout their careers and were, were put in this league just to bide their time until it was time for them to retire. I just happened to pull up the roster here uh, while we were talking. Uh, the Norsemen went through nine goalies that season. Uh, <laughs> and uh, 
the the list of players is long. It is sure. long uh, because uh, you're churning through them. Uh, but uh, the leading scorer was Larry Gould. He had 32 goals and 68 assists. A nice round 100 points in 71 games. How about Steve Atkinson? In 37 games, he had 61 points. Steve, um, Atkinson, Steve Atkinson was a was a terrific talent. He was one of those gentlemen that had questionable habits. <laughs> yeah. The well, other one that you should pay attention to is Claude Noel, who played on the Buffalo Norsemen, who also then became an NHL coach. And Claude, you know, enjoy after uh, the Buffalo Norsemen, they only existed one year because they ran into financial difficulties and then never came back. Uh, Dr. Tarecki, Dudley Tarecki, who owned the team with a couple of his investors, they, they bled, bled out with all their money regarding the teams. Claude Noel had a great uh, American League and had a couple, couple cups of coffee in the, in the uh, NHL and then, you know, became, uh, uh, you know, a, a coach, uh, assistant coach, and then become an NHL coach. So, I mean, there's some guys that, that made it. Claude was yeah, one of those that, that didn't, uh, wasn't drafted high, or even if he was drafted and he moved on, you know, he took advantage of his opportunity. Some made it, and, and including journalists, Ed. Some of them made <laughs> it. You, uh, you end up going to Indiana University, where the coaches at the time uh, uh, for football are Lee Corso, and of right. course at basketball, uh, Bob Knight. What was it like to be on campus and a student at that time at Indiana to go to, because I know a lot of, um, and I hear from parents and friends of mine who send their kids uh, off to college and kids want to pick a college because of the experience. And uh, they, they talk to me about, especially if they want to get into sports, maybe they want to get into journalism or uh, analytics. And there's all kinds of different things that parents will say, hey, you know, uh, what are your thoughts or what do you hear about this school's program or that school's program? But Indiana University had a fantastic and still does have a fantastic journalism program. But also being on campus at that time had to be a hoot. Oh, it was wonderful. Are you kidding me? You know, Lee Corso was a character back then as our as Indiana coach. We weren't very good in football. I mean, we were known as a basketball school. We were known as a swimming school because we had, you know, Doc Councilman as the swimming coach and and. Hobie Billingsley as the uh, diving coach and Jerry Yegley, you know, was beginning his uh, soccer career as a coach at Indiana. And he, he subsequently won quite a few NCAA titles with that down the road. So it was, we, I was one of 33,000 kids on campus in Bloomington and, and Bloomington kind of reminded you a little bit of North Tonawanda and it, the, the way it was uh, designed and what way it was built. But um uh, you know, we had to get uh, to get uh, season tickets for the Hoosiers. We had to go into a lottery draft just so you could get, you know, five tickets for the for home games. And uh, one game you're on the floor, one game you're up in the nosebleeds and wherever, wherever it took you. Did you miss the undefeated season or was that? I came right after the undefeated season. Right. So it's at it's at peak Hoosier hysteria at right. that time. Um, we, we still had Kent Benson on our team. We weren't that, we, that my first year there, we weren't that good. It, it was like a 500 team, you know, after they went uh, two years in a row where they uh, only lost one game. Um, it was hard to, to, to keep that up at that point. But Bobby Knight was uh, an interesting cat and an interesting character. I mean, people, he was tempestuous back then. Uh, I mean, some of the stuff that hasn't been written, you know, Bobby, Bobby, 
He had a temper. He he did things his way. No. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and Lee Corso was just the opposite. He he bring his you know they scored a, a touchdown against Michigan and and lead the, lead in the game and he would stop the game and line the team up in front of the scoreboard so they could take a team picture of them you know beating beating Michigan because that's the closest thing that they would come to it at that point you know but uh, I mean, oh he would bring them out on the field in a double decker bus. I mean, Lee was, was quite the character back then, and, and uh, it was good for the program. Now, Bob Knight, I think if you want to talk about uh, cancel culture in, in today's uh, society, uh, he, he caught a bit of that, obviously. Of course, I don't think that strangling a kid, I don't think that strangling Neil Reed or uh, berating a, a student who doesn't even play for him on campus would, would constitute uh, high sensitivity. Uh, generally, you don't get away with things like that. Uh, but you saw him, again, peak Bob Knight. I mean, that, that's the type of guy who ran the university in many ways. You just win a national championship in the states, you know, uh, the official state sport of basketball. Uh, and I just want to ask you, Ed, how, how long would a Bob Knight last today? For those who maybe you know, we have a lot of people who are listening to this who may not even have seen Bob Knight on a sideline. In fact, Bob Knight's final game with Indiana took place in Buffalo uh, at the NCAA tournament here uh, when they were beaten by Pepperdine, right? Yeah, I think. Yeah, Jan Van Bredikoff, who then used that to uh, get his job at uh, St. Bonaventure. But, anyways, um, Bob Knight in in today's world, how, how does that go? Maybe a season. Maybe yeah. one season. Unfortunately, um, his brazen personality would not play well. And uh, the times that we lead, we live in right now, not good. Not good for for a guy like Bob Knight. It's too bad. Brilliant coach. He just uh, his uh, his sideshow is a little bit too much for people. The interpersonal skills are a little lacking, I think. <laughs> Uh, I had a cousin, uh, my first cousin uh, played at uh, Indiana University for Bob Knight in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, Pat Graham, and he was a hell of a player. And remember he, him. he chose uh, he chose Indiana because of Bob Knight and a lot of guys did. Uh, and uh, they lovingly MF him to this day. Uh, but some of them don't anymore. I think he, he wore he wore a lot of them out. And uh it's interesting, you know, I'd get around Pat at a family reunion and people start asking him about Bob Knight and he didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> uh, but um, so you, you move from Indiana University, you end up at the Courier Express. Right. Again, this is all we're seeking. It was so much romanticism involved here. We've been talking about high school football, the, the, the uh, Niagara Frontier League, um, Indiana University at a time that wouldn't exist today. Um, the Tonawanda news filing with the Smith Corona and now the Buffalo courier express, which a lot of people remember fondly. And I still have people tell me to this day, well, particularly when I was working for the Buffalo news, man, I sure do miss the courier express. <laughs> and they were saying it not to necessarily to be wistful, but as an insult that, uh, it's a shame that there's only one paper in this town and I got to, and I got to read yours. Uh, what was it like at the Courier Express? I mean, I've heard all the stories, but if you'd share with the audience what your your memories of working with uh, uh, a lot of legends in that sports department, too. Oh, my God. Um, 
Phil, getting to work with Phil Ranallo or Norm Warner, Jim Peters, Bob Powell, uh, Mike Jankowski, Eric Brady, Chip Draper, Mike Bellani, um, Tony Roberto, who's still now with the Buffalo Nose. I mean, she was she was a lowly clerk like I was. I mean, and uh, Bob DeCesare. I mean, we we all worked together, and that's when they they decided they wanted to put a lot of money into local sports because it sold a lot of newspapers. Um, we would, you know, we would take all the all the results of every game. It didn't matter, you know, if they could do a if they could somehow agate a card game, they would have done that as well too. I mean, it was it was just that just that good that we had, and they put that much emphasis into it. Um, working with a guy like Phil Ranallo, irreplaceable. Um, you know, I used to read his What's What's New Harry uh, column all the time as a kid. And then you got the, to meet with the guy and, and talk with the guy on a daily basis. Uh, tremendous. I, I think often of Phil all the time. I mean, all these years later, we're talking 40 years since the paper closed and it's 40 years this year. So, um, and when my father passed away in 1981, it was Phil Brunello who was the first person that came to me in the newsroom and uh, consoled me and i'll never forget that i'm eternally grateful for that and the ranallo family for him what was it like uh, when it closed in terms of the run-up to it and uh the the stress of needing to find new work of saying goodbye to a lot of close friends um when the courier express closed i know it broke a lot of hearts i was a young guy i mean you saw guys like billy coglin who uh spent his life there 30 some odd years there and his, his father was there before that for over 40 years and it's like you saw a lot of guys in their their 50s um in late 50s and early 60s like what are they going to do next and better yet could the buffalo news absorb how many there were a thousand people 1100 people that worked at that newspaper when it closed um the run-up from what i remember it was quick um concessions weren't going to be made you know rupert murdoch wanted it this way and his people wanted it this way and that's the way it was going to be and unfortunately they couldn't come to we couldn't come to an agreement and say la vie what was it like for you trying to find work right after that and again you're young you're a little probably flexible i don't know what your situation is I, were you married at the time no Okay, so you could move if you needed to, but uh, what was it? Was it a mad scramble to to find jobs? No, I went back to graduate school. I also had another okay. job on the side as well, too. You know, building swimming pools. So I mean, and and putting together billiard tables over that's at that, that's that old house. that old journalism chestnut. You know, writing that's, stories at night, building pools during the day, and that's how I came up too, Ed. And you know uh, what? I mean. I, I would suck at being a waiter, so I didn't bother to get into the food service. You know, <laughs> I never made it out of the dishwasher in, in the back, so I, I didn't have any aspirations to become a food service, you know, and get in back into the food service business. Did you have aspirations to get into pro wrestling industry? No. All right. Can you break that story down for me and, and how it happens that you I, go from honest journalist I'm saying this, if, if you're not watching, right. uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you can see that I'm, I got a little deadpan going here from honest in tech, in, in uh, journalist with integrity to 
the dark side of pro wrestling. That brings up, remind me to tell you a story about that as well, too. Um, 1982, I take a job with here in Auburn, New York at the Auburn Citizen. And six day a, a six day a week newspaper, um, two man sports staff. You know, it is it's like being back at the Tonawanda News. A wrestling show comes into town at uh, Cougar Community College here in town, put on by a group out of Geneva called the Fuller Brush Company. Can't make this up. So I call to try to get credentials. I have to track it down. Their headquarters back then, World Wrestling Federation, was on Cape Cod. So I call, and I speak to a gentleman named Ed Cohen, who became one of my best friends afterwards, and explain to him that I wanted to do, I wanted credentials for the World Wrestling Federation show coming to the college. And he said, wait a minute, we don't allow legitimate media in. Um, I said, look, I grew up in the Western New York area. I watched wrestling on Channel 4 for many years. I watched it out of Toronto. I watched it out of Hamilton. I kind of understand what's, what's up with professional wrestling. So I tell you what, I'm gonna, I'll do a respectful piece about it. What do you say? He says, okay, you, I'll let you in. You and the photographer, you have to do me a favor. Whatever you guys write you have to, and do, you have to send to me. Okay, fair enough. It shows on a Thursday night. We do something for the Friday paper. On Sunday, the photographer put together a picture page. That's when newspapers did picture pages. Big hit. So Sunday afternoon, I am putting this together and mailing it out to the Cape. That, the following Wednesday, I'm gonna, getting a phone call at my apartment from Ed Cohen saying, oh my God, we love your stuff. We wanna see if you're interested in coming and, and interviewing for this national magazine that we wanna start. And if you'd like to become the editor of it and we'll, we'll interview the photographer as well too. Sure, I'm 25 years old, I'm single. I'm living in Auburn, New York. Why not, you know? I'm game. So we fly, about two weeks later, we fly out and we get, get to the Cape. We interview. We're hired on the spot. We're negotiating our, our pay at that point and giving our start date, which was July 31st, 1983. The first show, Madison Square Garden. We're coming right out of the box, fast and furious. I mean, we gave my notice in... Uh, this was in the middle of June that we interviewed. So we kind of kept it quiet for a little bit. Then we gave our notice and then people thought we were nuts that we were going from, uh, we were going to the dark side. My right. mother thought, my mother thought I was joining the mob. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she, she really did. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And, and, uh, I said, yeah, they're Irish mobsters, you know, instead of uh, Italian ones. So we're okay. You know, um, so my first show was at, at Madison Square Garden. And, and there is a line that you're crossing here um, oh, as a journalist. A oh, and yeah. I recall uh, I did a story in the late 90s for the Las Vegas Sun. And uh, we had our entertainment writer, which was really rare and kind of scandalous at the time. Or, or sorry, our entertainment uh, section editor had worked at the National Enquirer. And you don't get a job at the National Enquirer and then come back, uh, generally speaking. And the sensationalism and the phoniness or the kayfabe in the, in the case of uh, wrestling 
Um, uh, but so I had done this story where I trailed Dennis Rodman around uh, Las Vegas. This was when uh, the I think it's the 97 NBA finals. I mean, there's somebody uh, yelling out right now. But when uh, when the Bulls played the Jazz in the finals, they had an off day and Phil Jackson allowed Dennis Rodman to get on a charter flight and go to Vegas for, and spend the day. And it was a big kind of a scandalous thing. I mean, how Phil Jackson, we're in the finals here. You're going to let this guy go party. And that was kind of the genius of Phil Jackson was I got to make I got to keep this guy happy. And if he's happy, he's performing and we win the championship type thing. So we knew ahead of time that he was coming in and I trailed him, uh, you know, not without, not with permission. This wasn't an official thing. And it turned out the story was a, was a hit. And the, the guy told me you could work at the national Enquirer if you want. And I was 26, 27 at the time. And he's like, you can make a lot of money, but there's no coming back. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, maybe I won't, maybe I won't do that. That's very true. That's what happened to me. Once you, once you, you cross that line. Now, now today. You could today. Is, you could today. Yeah, I think. Today is today. Everything is blurred right now. But back then, once you went into, became a fiction writer and your credibility was kind of, uh, they put an asterisk next to your credibility and whether anything that you would write for them would be legitimate or did you made it up or was uh, coerced, that would always be in question. And so the funny thing was, is that when I, I did put some feelers out a few years later, I couldn't even get a job at ESPN in Connecticut. I mean, we were based in Stanford, Connecticut. ESPN was running, you know, AWA pro wrestling shows. They wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. The only place I could go would be the Inquirer or the World Weekly News. Right. I mean, I mean that's all where, I, where you could go. Pen, with that Penthouse point. Forum. Well, I, I don't know about that. I mean... <laughs> That takes too much reading. You know, some guys just look at, read the magazine sideways. You know that. <laughs> Did you uh, consider writing under a, a, a different name or anything like that? No, 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 no. I mean, you have to understand something. When you were, I, I were, was a magazine editor for Vince for about a year. And when you work for Vince, he determines your shelf life. You know, and we, I did a lot of different things. Don't get me wrong. I, I learned a lot from the man. The man is a pure genius. He really is. He is the, definitely the modern day P.T. Barnum. Uh, how he made such a mega empire in such a short time is mind boggling. He, the man would literally work 18 to 20 hours a day. He was always on the go. The only problem is that he expected you to be working those same 18 to 20 hours but he wasn't paying you for it. And so it's how much can you give it at that point? It's just like, how much is enough is enough. And the light speed, how they wanted to get things done. We were never told that he had a, a year to pay his father off with a million dollars or pops was taking the business back. So there was always that incentive that go, 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 go. And Vince doing different television deals with all these different markets. No two deals were alike, you know? He was taking it from shows being on, on Friday nights and Saturday nights at midnight on the way off hours that TV stations would give him. And now he was taking it and moving it to mainstream with uh, USA Cable Network. And then got hooked up with um, the people from NBC where they ended up, we ended up doing Saturday night, you know, main events. 
So, I mean, it, it, it took off exponentially. I mean, and this is 1983 when the World Wrestling Federation is still presenting itself as real, right? Wrestling is real. This is the big uh, 2020 expose with John Stossel where he gets slapped. And I, from what I understand, you were nearby when that happened. But yeah, that, that's about, the infamous slap. 10, 15 feet away and, and backstage at Madison Square Garden when that happened. And, and, uh, Wrong place, wrong time for John Stossel at that point, and he got the wrong dude when David Schultz. So, I mean, it's like, and, you know, David Schultz to this day has said that Vince coerced him into doing it as well, too, to protect the image of the business. Um, you know, we never used the word fake in any way, shape, or form. We just, we didn't use the word entertainment at, at, at that point. It was known as a sport. And... Um, it was until later when, you know, Vince, you know, James had to apply on, on some state licenses that he put it down as entertainment and, and the mainstream media jumped all over it. And then it's the business. Yeah, and that's really what tripped it up. For those who don't know, it was, I believe the trigger was that it had that, I believe it was, I don't know if it was New York or New Jersey said that if you're, if this is real, then you need to go through our boxing and wrestling commission and have be regulated. You have to go through testing. Uh, you have to apply for licenses for each of your competitors. Uh, you need to have things like an ambulance on site in case there's, you know, all the different things that a boxing match needs to have for safety regulations and licensing. And correct me if I'm wrong, Ed, but I think that's really what got it. And then uh, Vince then had to admit in either documents or an open court uh, that I don't recall that uh, we don't need all that stuff because it's not real. And it was supposed to be a big mushroom cloud, and it ended up somehow catapulting wrestling into more of a mainstream, more, it got more popular. Well, it did. It was New Jersey, by the way. That New Jersey. The, okay, with, I knew it was with, one of those. With the application, but it gets kind of muddled with Pennsylvania as well, too, because we had the uh, Dr. Zohorian uh, steroid nonsense in business where Dr. Zohorian went to prison for a few years for... Uh, uh, giving the boys too much of uh, unprescribed candy. You know, when we did television taping in Allentown and then Hamburg, Pennsylvania, which we did every three weeks. Now, this isn't an expose I'm here talking about. That A lot of these guys and a lot of these boys were my friends. Uh, a lot of them are gone. You know, people have said to me, why don't you write a book? Nah, not my style, man. I was, I was invited into this fraternity and there's a certain bond and a certain code and, and a certain loyalty, even, even when they're gone that, uh, you know, you, you just don't cross that line. You know, it's blurred right now where people doing all kinds of different podcasts and this, that, and the other thing. And I really don't partake in that whatsoever. I mean, it is what it is, but, um, I just, I was very, very fortunate to be part of the business. I mean, you get to meet the grand wizard, Ernie Roth, a couple of months before he passes away. And Ernie was a wonderful guy. Or Captain Lou Albano and Freddie Blassie and Roddy Piper and, and Hulk Hogan and Sergeant Slaughter. I mean, I saw Slaughter a couple of years ago and he stopped at, um, at a signing event. He stopped right in the middle of it and said, I got to say hello to an old friend. And he gave me a big hug and, and uh, he said he started talking to me like it was 1986. And I said, please stop and I'm going to cry. I mean, it just... Uh, it's just one of those things that you, you don't, it, it's just a wonderful time in your life that you, you, 
I'll take them to the grave with me. It's just fantastic. You know, on this podcast, I do like to talk about journalism whenever I can. And I, we do have a lot of people who do like to uh, tune in for that aspect of it, as well as, you know, talking about the Bills or the Sabres or whatever's going on in sports. So you, you bring up a good journalism question here, Ed. Um, you know, when Deep Throat died, uh, it was revealed who he was. That was one of the things. And maybe that, maybe Woodward and Bernstein had, uh, had a discussion with him before and said, okay, when you're dead, can, we can come out and say it. What are your thoughts? You just mentioned something interesting in journalism of a source who you are protecting or, yeah, you, you're protecting. And the same thing with me. When I write a story where I source somebody, there's, an, there's a trust of, I know I can tell Tim Graham this because he's not going to burn me. He's not going to out me. I can stay safe. I'm not going to get fired or I'm not going to face you know, a problem here. I can tell Tim Graham this information and it's going to go in the vault. But when that person dies, uh, what happens? What do, you, or what do you think should happen? Obviously, you've given your answer, but let's maybe discuss it from a journalism standpoint. The idea of if you've given your word, that that does is that should that be forever? I think your word is your bond. So if you've given your word, you stick with it, even after now, the person's gone. Yeah, I do. I mean, if you if you made arrangements and you've discussed it with them, and and they've given they signed off on yes, you can reveal me or reveal me as a source after I passed away. That's a whole different thing. But I mean, it's, it's all in the, in the setup and, and I'll beforehand and what the arrangements and what the agreement is. I mean, me, I, I came to a, in my mind, even though I, you know, I parted with them with the world wrestling federation only after four years that uh, those friendships mean a lot more to me than, than uh, making a couple bucks. Right. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sell, sell myself out or sell them out. Well, not There's, even selling it, uh, but even speaking about it. I mean, you're not going to tell Tim Graham on his podcast, uh, you know, some, you know, secret that Andre the giant, you know, confided in, in you. I did it one. The reason I bring it up is I struggled with it because I needed to tell a journalism point or make a journalism point. And I felt really terrible. And I did reveal a source uh, on this podcast uh, on a story to prove, again, to explain how journalism works, how the sausage is made. And in the process, I said, and I didn't slip up. I thought about it ahead of time. And I revealed uh, it's because, and my reasoning was, well, the person's not around anymore. I can say it in the moment. That was my thought. And afterwards, after, you know, maybe the next day, I was like, why did I do that? Like, why did I feel the need to do that? And I felt bad about it ever since. And I've kind of, I agree with you. I think that if you do give your word, because let's face it, if, all right, I'll just use this as a hypothetical. And this isn't from real life because I didn't have a, a tight relationship with Ralph Wilson. But as an example, let's say that uh, Ralph Wilson used to tell me, uh, gave me a backstory about how Jim Kelly ended up with Houston uh, and the Bills screwed something up. Um, I'm not going to, Ralph Wilson should know or not have to worry that after I'm gone, you're going to whiz on my grave and, and let this story out. You know, I, I think that that should be part of it. Like I'm never going to bring, you know, or, or your relatives or whatever. I, I'm not going to, uh, and now I'm just throwing some word salad out there, but I, I, I think I'm, I hopefully I'm making my point. No, you're making, but yeah, it's, it's just, you're, you're if I tell you, Ed, I, in the world. 
Yeah, that's like, yeah, forever. Like you don't have to, you're not going to have to worry about this. Even after you're gone, I'm not going to bring your name up in this topic and uh, let you know that you're the person who told me. I mean, the things that I saw will, I don't share with many people, nor do I share a lot of different things as well too. Funny you should mention Andre the Giant. Andre was a, was a dear friend of ours. Um, I got to know Andre very well. After I left the business, I caught up with my friend, uh, Tim White, who just passed away, the old uh, WWF referee. Tim also stood up in my wedding. So we, we were taught, we caught up in Buffalo um, at the Hilton right after an odd show. It was about December of 1987. And we ended up going to the bar at the Hilton. And, and Tim was the bodyguard of Andre the Giant. Tim was also a, a former spar, uh, sparring partner of Mar Marvin Hagler. Tim could handle himself. And of course, we, you know, some guys, some of the local drunks wanted to, you know, come and take a, take a, bit, a beef with Andre. And, and Mr. Tim just said, easy fellas, not tonight. You're going to have to come through me first. And, and they backed off. But Andre caught Which is that ironic, right? That Andre the Giant needs a bodyguard, number one, and that this guy could probably handle himself better than Andre. <laughs> yeah, but if Andre, Andre lifts a finger, it's a lawsuit. Right. That's right. And, and there's a chance that someone's, you know, pull a knife or a gun. So, but Andre sat down with my, my wife and they were talking about, Andre's asking, can I come to your wedding? Hello, can I come to your wedding? You have to understand something. He never had a normal life. He couldn't, he couldn't be in a normal bed. He couldn't be in a normal car. He couldn't fly in a normal airplane seat. He couldn't go in a normal bar. A lot of these places, he was in back rooms with these bar, bar owners and bartenders. I mean, and so Andre's asking my wife, well, what color are your uh, bridesmaids gowns? And you wouldn't think about that coming from the, the eighth right. wonder of the world. I mean, it's, it's just, the man was, was precious. And really she's thinking was. to herself, Ed didn't even ask me what color the bridesmaids gowns were going to be. I knew they were, they were, per, they were blue. <laughs> <laughs> they were blue. So, I mean, I, I trust me, when you're getting married, you know all these details. You know that you, you, you do have to pay attention once in a while. So, um, but, it, it, but he couldn't make it. He knew, we said, okay, it's, it's May 14th. And this is December. And he's going, oh, I can't make it. I'll be in Hartford that night working. So he knew all these things in advance. I'll tell one more Andre story. We were doing a photo shoot up in, in, uh, his, his bar restaurant in uh, Montreal. He owned it with Gino Brito and, and Dino Bravo. And we're do, taking the photos and this, that, and these guys are knocking them back. You know, a glass of wine, a normal glass of wine for a guy like Andre looks like a shot glass in his hand. Right. And so we decided, let's go out on the street and take, take a couple pictures. So we're out on the street and this little old lady coming down the street, she stopped in front of him. And she points her finger, puts it right in his chest. Now, that, that means a, her hand is above her head. And she's going, kill the monster. Kill the monster. Andre in Montreal was a heel. It was known as uh, uh, Frere Jean, Brother John. And this lady was, nobody, nobody put her up to it. She just came up to it and, and gave, her, gave her, him a piece of her mind. It was, it was, it was nutsy. It was crazy. I mean, the stuff that we did. The other thing what we did was with Sergeant Slaughter. We decided one day, or no, let me back it up. 
we could decide with the Iron Sheik, we're going to go down to the United Nations. Glassy in the car. I'm driving the company car, the Lincoln Town car. I got Steve Taylor, the photographer, next to me. The Sheik has got that Khomeini flag. There, he is hot as a red hot. So much heat on him. And Blassie's loving every minute of it. Fred had just retired as a wrestler and getting into this manager gig. And he, he's still, it's good for his ego and still in the limelight. We just, we get out, park in front of the United Nations. He gets, she gets out there with that Khomeini flag and is waving it and spewing out all anti-American stuff. And you could see, looking at the building, all the people pouring out of the building and quite the commotion that he's making. And before they went out, I said, boys, we got maybe 10 minutes. Then you got to get in the car. We got to get out of here. So we did. The people that came out on the street that needed to see this spectacle, I mean, Sheik was putting the flag, unfolding the flag and disassembling it in the car. Him and Blassie were roaring the whole time. Oh, this is great. Oh, and Blassie, ha, 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 I mean, the stuff that we did, and I'm thinking, I got to get out of Manhattan here and hopefully nobody's going to follow me. And better yet, hopefully no one's going to kill us. So, I mean, it's just goofy stuff that we did. Now, another time we go to Washington, D.C. with Slaughter. Sergeant Slaughter, him and the Sheik, Cobra Corps in 84. Americanism, you know, the Iranian hostage crisis, we're playing it up. We go on a Sunday morning, eight o'clock in the morning. We're walking in front of the White House. Here come the guys in the suits talking into the cufflinks. All right, a couple pair go by us, not stopped. We just go about our business and a photographer is shooting photos. Here comes another two gentlemen talking to their cufflinks. They don't stop. Okay. Couple more shots. Here comes the third set. Then they stop. And they said, Mr. Holinsky, how long will you and, and Sergeant Slaughter and Mr. Taylor be here this morning? We weren't aware that you were coming today. Said, uh, we're, we're about finished. Thank you so much. So back then, think of the technology. How'd they know who you were? That's big brother. They know who you are. <laughs> That's big brother. They know, they know who you are. So we go to the tomb of the unknown soldier, very solemn place. You get some knuckleheads yelling, Sarge, Cobra floor, USA, USA. You just don't do that there. Okay. You know, we go, you know, the statue of Iwo Jima, Sarge is, you know, putting his hands up in front of the statue, making it look like he's holding the flag. And, you know, we do that, that gimmicky stuff as well too. We get back into my car and I said, geez, we're driving by the Pentagon. Why don't I just go up the driveway, see what, what's going on? Which I did. Slaughter's in the back seat, you know, Steve Taylor's next to me in the car. Driving my 1979 Chevy Malibu with no air conditioning and, and the vinyl seats, lime green, no less. And we go up about eighth of a, a mile, eighth of, eighth of a mile up the driveway. Here come three cars side by side by side coming at us thinking this is not good. So I, I just pretend I'm making a three point U-turn, right? Not rushing, not squealing, anything like that. Just very methodical. So I get turned around and didn't get very far and they pulled me over. Sir, state your business. 
well, you know, it took a wrong turn into here. You know, we're here in town doing a wrestling shoot. And they look in the back seat and they go, is that Sergeant Slaughter? I said, sure is. They said, okay, follow what's out. You're okay. Next time, next time, don't come up here. <laughs> okay, very good. Thank you. So, I mean. This- well, he has a rank. He's a sergeant. <laughs> that was just the time right, to tell you where we, the business was going at that point and where every, a lot of people were in tune, whether they wanted to admit it or not. The closet wrestling fans, there, there's a lot of them out there. Another journalism question for you, Ed. How, what was the transition like when you were leaving the Auburn Citizen? And how did you know what you, you're the editor of the World Wrestling Federation report. Um, how did you know, or how were you taught what is okay to print and what is not okay to print? Oh, you learned the school of hard knocks on something like that. Um, throw out all the, um, the things you learned in journalism school and pick up everything that you learned in your English lit uh, class, uh, because you're writing a completely different style at that point. Um, everything went through Vince and Linda McMahon at that point. They were the final editors of the, because it was their money. It was their magazine. It, it's the image that they wanted to portray where some things were gone back for rewrite. Oh yeah, it happened. I mean, because you were going back with the legit journalism approach and they didn't like that. It didn't fit the mode. Um, and that's okay. I mean, you, you learn this and, and the approach with it as well. So um, it was a learning experience. But, you know, they wanted that, that magazine to soar so quickly that they figured that I wasn't the guy for them. So they moved me over to their marketing and merchandising department too. Don't get me wrong. I learned a lot of TV production at that point. They put me on the radio and Z100 with Scott Shannon with that, that uh, worst the first year as well, too. I was easy ed with the World Wrestling Federation report from Madison Square Garden, the Meadowlands, the Nassau Coliseum. And did I ever do radio before? Heck no. But Scott Shannon was very patient with me. And, uh, you know, we, were get, we would get back from the city at four o'clock in the morning and I'm writing a script at five o'clock in the morning and I got to be, you know, doing it on the phone with him by six o'clock in the morning. And it's just like, it's, it's not, yeah. we're back to the Smith Corona typewriter still at that point. You know, I mean, it's. Do you have a shtick at this point when you're on the air? Do you go on, is, is Easy Ed a different person than Ed, Ed Holinsky? Yeah, it is a little bit. Yeah. It is a little, and that was, that was taught to me by Scott Shannon as well, too. I mean, when I do radio right now for high school sports, I have a different shtick as well, too. I mean, it's, I'm entertaining. I mean. I'll be the judge of that. Well, and a lot of people are the judge of that as well, too. I mean, but <laughs> I, I can't be boring either. The right. one, you can't lie to people and you can't bore people. Those are the two biggest mistakes in the world. You know, I mean. So how did your time at uh, the WWF come to an end? I was going to get married. Um, and we were coming to a point where does, do I want to bring my bride to uh, the coast of Connecticut. It was called the Gold Coast back then for a reason. Fairfield, Stanford, West. I was living in Westport, Connecticut at the time. Um, do I want to, you know, 
expose her to more nonsense of this stuff? I mean, the craziness and the zaniness of it. Or do, did I want to move back to Auburn, New York and, and uh, live a, a, a simpler life? We get married, we have some kids and, and raise our kids in the area. And so we decided on that. And so I was coming up for a raise and a review. And all of a sudden they decide, oh, before I could, before I could quit, they, they, they retired me. And that's okay. I mean, <laughs> I got my severance and uh, it worked out well. What did you think that you could slip back into the journalism industry or did you know, I, did, I, I guess I should say, did I you knew. try, did you try after you left the, the no. WWF? No, cause I knew I, I had tried the last year beforehand and I was running up against resistance in a stone wall at that point. No, at that, nobody would touch me with a 10 foot pole. Five years later, when all these television magazines came out and, and, you know, those lines were starting to get a little blurred. That's completely different. Newspapers took a while before, before they, they eased up. They really did. They, they held a hard line. No, you crossed the line. You can't come back. So what did you do with yourself? I got in the trucking um, management with the yellow freight system. I did, uh, did trucking for about uh, 14 years. Tried myself in insurance waste of time. Um, it, it takes too long to build your business being in insurance. And then I got, I got back into um, newspapers and on the advertising aspect of it and then got into radio, which radio was always my first love. Growing up in Western New York, you know, WKBW, WGR, WBEN, you know, uh, the, the mighty 97 rock. I mean, all that stuff back then. And then I, I got a shot and an opportunity being a sales rep there. And then um, about seven, eight years ago, uh, one of our, our uh, announcers wasn't showing up for their gigs. There's too much advertising money left. You can't give it back. You don't want to give it back. So I said to the program director, give me a shot. You know, It's not going to be pretty in the beginning, but I'll be there and we'll get the games on the air. And then uh, he gave me the shot and it's all been good since then. And now. Uh, I think I do a pretty good job at it right now. That or they would have replaced me a long time ago, you know? So, I mean, I've been doing radio here in Auburn, New York on WAUB radio and the stations of the Finger Lake radio group. So um, high school sports and it's a lot of fun. And then that leads me right into the next question about the North Tonawanda football hall of fame. It's a, it's a pretty cool, um, a pretty cool group you got going there, but it started off just with preservation of some film from what I understand. It did. Uh, a friend of mine, Keith Biscucci, you know, was bothering me about bugging me about four years ago saying, we've got all these old films from George Vetter's era. Now we're talking the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s that are on either eight millimeter or 16 millimeter film. A lot of them were in the basement. Some of them got damaged due to water. A lot of them in those canisters are disintegrating because of the chemical reaction in all these years of inactivity. And he says to me, what can we do with these things? I said, well, you got to digitize them and you got to save them. I mean, otherwise, a lot of history goes up, up in smoke. I said, I'll tell you why I'm going to retire in the next couple of years. When I retire, let's, let's talk about let's get together. So the day I announced my retirement, no later than a day afterwards, he's calling me. He goes, 
Is it time? I said, sure. So we came up with a plan with, with you know, Paul Fry's uh, and Don Warmington that we were going to raise some money to get these films digitized and preserved. And we got, you know, we sent them out to, we used a local vendor for some of them. And some of them we had to send out to uh, a place called Legacy Box in Knoxville, Tennessee. We raised about $10,000 to get these films digitized. And we figured we would end up with about 450 and be tops with it. Um, then we got into the, the VHS tapes. Now try to find a VHS machine. Try to find a beta player that works. I mean, those were, those were gone in, in the early 2000s. How tough was that? Them. We found that. Where do you, where do you find it? Antiques or well, no, good, Goodwill? Not, you just go on social media and say, who's got well, a VHS true. player or a beta player? And you could buy programs at, for your computer. And so now this is, this is at this point, this is the pandemic. This is 2020. We're starting to put videos up on, on this North Tonawanda Football Hall of Fame YouTube channel. Keith and I are meeting in Batavia off the throughway in a church parking lot. We called it our drug deal. We were exchanging, exchanging tapes. tapes. Exactly. Yeah. We had, the, we had the, the, the minister come out a couple of times asking what we were doing. I mean, it says, you know, if we, if we told you, you wouldn't believe it anyway, but we're just exchanging tapes. But uh, my wife was thought I was not. I have a collection. He's got a collection. And we, uh, you know, we were, we're, we're, uh, we, we're into this stuff. Right. Reverend. And so, and so <laughs> we got through that. And then we got to some of these other tapes as well, too, you know, in different formats and, and got them digitized. So that 450 now grew up over 700. And said, geez, why don't we do a couple of YouTube, you know, uh, some uh, videos, uh, Zoom videos with some of these former players or do them in, in person just to, you know, get their thoughts and their memories of, of when they played. And so we did it for Bishop Gibbons and we did it for the North Tonawana players. And, um, but we have all these films now. So now, and now we're doing all the, all the current games as well, too. So now we're up over 840 videos, and it keeps growing. It's amazing. And so we have, now we have films that go back to 1928. And we found those, and they were a different format, a French format, that we had to send to Montana to get them digitized. I mean, some of the nutsy stuff that we did. But we have the ability to preserve memories, not just the NT guys, but all of their opponents the Kenmores, the Niagara Falls, everybody that played at that point. And right now, two and a half years into it, we're, we're up over 105,000 views on our, on our YouTube channel. So, I mean, it just keeps growing and growing. And if you Google just anything with NT football versus so-and-so, it'll show up on the Google search. That's pretty cool. So we've done it with, you know, put in the, the meta tags and, uh, and everything like that to the cross-reference that. Some of the coaches and players that I've talked to, they've passed away. And their families are grateful that they have something tangible out there forever of their loved one. Some of these coaches I could, couldn't get to in time and they passed away. And I regret that. There's some players that won't talk to me for whatever reason, you know. I got Rick Casada, 
Rick Casada doesn't give many interviews. He was when I before we did the tape, just like this, he said, I'm scared. He says, You're a big tough guy. You shouldn't be scared. I mean, I said, This is not brain surgery, and we're gonna put each other over. So I mean everything's gonna be good. Um, he's our he's our most watched uh, subject. No kidding. He is a, a Tonawanda guy in the North Tonawanda Hall of Fame, you know. Right. So, and the other one is, you know, we have this this uh, 39 second clip of the 1977 streaker in the TNT game, <laughs> and that's that's got over 2,200 views right now, and and people just, you know, they they're inherently inquisitive and uh, like stupid shit like that that happened in North Tonawanda history. I mean, it's, it's, we don't have one from the 1979 streaker who got arrested, got caught and arrested. Well, there's time. Somebody's got it. Well, maybe not, maybe not 79. That's, that's, that's a tough time. Every, not just anybody had the recorders going at that time. Uh, you have to understand something. Somebody knew something in 77 because typically all these coaches turned off the film at halftime. There was no recording. Somehow they got tipped off and that was recorded. Okay. So, so I mean, it was an inside job. It was exactly an inside job. So with the North Tonawanda Football Hall of Fame YouTube channel, I mean, our organization has been around for 50 years and, you know, it, it honors the memories of all these, these, these great uh, football players. We have our own little clubhouse over on Goundry. Boundary Street in North Tonawana behind the, uh, the art center there. So, I mean, it's, it's been there all along and, you know, bringing back all these things, all these, these videos just preserve the memory of all these players and all their, their families and something that their, their generations of families can, can hold on to and see, you know, it's a rewarding gonna, project I'm sure to work on. It, re it really wasn't, you know, you see a lot of these players jump out at you on the screen. I mean, just watch all the, the film that I have over the, over the last couple of years is tremendous. I mean, I mean, and just think about it and, and you just get thinking about a lot of these guys are no longer with us, but we have them preserved forever. Their grandkids, their great grandkids could see Uncle Joe or Grandpa Joe, you know, they're in front of them. I mean, it's, it's. It can get emotional sometimes. It really can if you overthink it. Well, Ed, this has been a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for, for sharing your story with me and uh, to talk about the North Tonawanda Football. Well, I'm sorry, not that it's the North Tonawanda. Yeah, North Tonawanda Football Hall of Fame. YouTube channel, I, yeah. I want to say, every time I say that, I want to throw in the high school. Uh, it's not, though. It's North Tonawanda Football Hall of Fame. North Tonawanda, class of 75 at Helinski, given back. Yeah. It have been a lot of fun. Tim, thank you so much for having me, brother. I appreciate it. Ed, thank you. Um, and uh, let's do it again. We'll come up with something. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll invent. Wait, you're a former, you know, you've written fiction. Uh, I, I'd like to consider myself a creative guy. I think we can invent some reason to, to have you back. I'm still a radio guy. I'm a play-by-play -play guy. So, you know, we can, uh, we can get into the shtick, you know. I look forward to it. Ed, thanks so much. Thank you.